So when he rocks up, all you got to do is say you want to see the guns first, okay? How's that? No, that way? Yeah? Okay, good. Gonna annoy your mum, Angel. Doesn't matter what he wants to do, got to see the guns. Right. Now, guys, got to be aggressive. Can't be fucking around with this guy. We've got to fuck him up. If we don't, he's going to start thinking he can come back at us, and we don't want that. Why don't we just knock him? Why knock him if we don't need to? Trust me, if we do this right, this motherfucker's not going to come back at us. Hey, blood capsules, eh? Fake blood. Whack two in your gob. Put them in the corner of your mouth. That way, when we start to give you a bit of a touch-up, you can bite down on them. Make it look like we've gone to town on you. Jesus, mate. I don't really like the sound of that, to be honest. Don't be a fucking pussy. We're not going to fucking hurt you. We're going to make it look good so they don't think it's a fucking setup. Okay. Have you got that? Yeah. Are we good? Yeah. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Killer Casting. I'm Lisa Zambetti. I'm the casting director in Los Angeles, and I'm probably best known for casting the long-running CBS series Criminal Minds, where I have cast psychopaths and serial killers and my share of all kinds of shady criminal types like mob bosses and strip club owners. And yes, many, many hitmen, many muscles for hire, but I've never cast a role quite like Ray Shoesmith on Mr. In-Between. And I can safely say I have never cast an actor quite like Scott Ryan. You know, all our listeners know we've been so captivated by this show. It's writing, it's casting, it's pace. It's actually, it's unstyle, it's anti-style and the tropes it discards and the stereotypes it issues. So anyway, when we see exceptional work, we just want to amplify it. We want to break it apart and understand why we are seeing what we're seeing. And Brian and Dean and I are fucking beside ourselves today because we have a special guest who can answer all of our burning questions about Mr. In-Between. And with us today is... How am I supposed to say who I have? No, just, just sit there and don't fucking say a word, please. Scott Ryan. Hey, everybody. Hey. So we have Scott Ryan. We're not worthy. Thank you so much. We would kiss your ring if you had a ring. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I can't quite believe it, but I've been staring at your face for many, many hours. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one of the things, Scott, I know you've been given so many accolades for your acting, you know, is casting directors and acting teachers, I mean, what we see you doing is so fantastic because you're just yourself. You're so relaxed. You're so available. And on the outside, you're so calm, but there's such internal work going on the inside. And, you know, actors work for decades to try to get what you have achieved. So we just really love it. Thank you. But that's not why we're here. We're not here to kiss your ass quite so much. We want to ask you about season three. So when season two ended, you know, Ray lost so many things, his brother, Ali, so many things. And I wanted to know why or what made you start season three the way you did with this sort of small time crooks ready to do this double cross and sort of what made you, instead of catching us up right away with Ray and Gaz or whoever, can you just talk to us about why you wanted to start season three that way? Well, it actually wasn't the plan to start season three that way. That was actually a later episode, this, the stuff that happens in the, in, 
episode one. But, you know, the beauty of the show is that, you know, you can you can play with it in the edit. You can you can say, look, let's take uh, episode three and let's stick it right at the front, you know, and move some other stuff around. That's the beauty of it because there's no there's no sort of I mean, there are there is a sort of uh, a through line, like a story that kind of starts and will run through the entire season. But and as long as you uh, hit all the points, the narrative points to make that happen, it's fine. But there's so many other things. There's so many other little storylines in the show um, that you can afford to do that. You can move stuff around um, and restructure. I mean, we're restructuring. I mean, we're looking at, uh, you know, the final episode at the moment. And uh, we had an idea about restructuring that episode a week ago, you know, mm. about, you know, changing this, changing that, putting this at the end, putting this at the front. And that really, it, 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 it makes it harder in some ways, but also easier. And I think uh, it's one of the strengths of the show is that, that, that ability to be able to move things around so that they're going to have more of an impact. Good thing about, you know, sticking it, uh, sticking that stuff in the, in the first episode, it really, you know, I, I thought it's an interesting way of starting with, um, you know, starting on other characters who we haven't seen before and mm-hmm. going, well, Ray, you know, the audience is then trying to catch up and go, well, where's Ray? Have I, have I got the right show? Um, <laughs> I don't know these guys. Uh, and, and what's, what's going to happen here? You know, we haven't seen this before. And I think one of the things you, you've got to do as a writer is you've got to try to, you know, you can you can fall into those traps of just, okay, well, this this is what worked in season one. Let's just do that again. Uh, or this is what worked in season two. Let's do that. It's trying to find ways to keep the audience guessing, I guess. Yeah. Mm. I wanted to ask you before, I'm going to throw it to Brian in a second. But so that scene that you have with Graham at the end when he's dying, it, I thought that was just such an interesting way to go. and. It seems to me that Ray's having such a weariness about like, what the fuck? I mean, why did you make me kill you? You know, this did not have to go down this way. Um, And and so it's setting the tone of the season with this sort of, it it makes us feel like Ray's kind of over it. Am am I reading too much into that or is that what you intended? Yeah, look, it it was the intention this season to, I mean, in season two, it was more his personal life that was more of an issue than anything else. And uh, I, I think season three, it was more to make it the, the job side of things that's starting to sort of take a toll on him. And he starts doing some jobs where he's, where he's a bit sort of morally conflicted. And I mean, that whole thing in episode one with Graham, you know, it was, it was, it was one of those things. It was all about ego, really. You know, Graham's ego, not wanting to, you know, look bad in front of his guys and, and, and wanting to come out on top and then, and then Ray being disrespected and then his ego kicks in and he gets, because he would have let them go if they had paid him the cash. would have been that, you know, he's pretty good to his word, but because they disrespected him, uh, he did what he did. But ultimately in the end, you know, he kind of gets to know this guy just a little. He's, I guess, some of himself there, you know, in this character and then thinks, well, I really went a bit too far. Yeah, I just, the thing that struck me about the show immediately is the the camera as a witness right there's no editorializing there's no like trying to make me feel a certain way i think there's only one time where where you guys use soundtrack you know where when you go out and beat the guys up you go to each of those guys and it's slow motion camera 
soundtrack underneath, but that's the only time. Most of the time, it's just like the camera's a witness and I'm witness, you know, watching what's happening, which I love, right? Because then I'm able to like make determinations about what I'm seeing. And I think the fact that you and Nash write and direct all of it, like there's no other, like, you know, like here in the States, a series like, you know, Criminal Minds that Lisa worked on, you know, they have a hired gun working on individual giving you episodes. Notes, giving you notes constantly, you know, wanting so an it, outline, yeah. So, I mean, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it sure seems like that facilitates the cleanness of the storytelling where you have like two people kind of working on the same vision. And what's the what's the balance there between like the written word and the visual kind of vocabulary? How do those come together so really seamlessly? like in the, in the final cut? Well, I think, you know, what I'm really interested in, you know, as a, as a filmmaker, as a writer, actor, director, all those things, is, is, is I'm interested in real life and I'm interested in realism. And, you know, Nash and I had had discussions about, you know, how to, how to, how to do the show, like how, to, how, how should it look? And, um, you know, we didn't want it to be, we wanted it to be as realistic as possible. I mean, if the, if the, if the you know, I go to great lengths to write dialogue as realistically as I can and the situations as realistically as I can. Uh, you know, performance-wise, I'm trying to be realistic. And so if you have a director who's trying to do something that's, uh, you know, extremely cinematic, it's, it's, not, it's not really going to fit. But Nash manages to do that to make it look kind of like and feel kind of real and documentary style, but also cinematic at the same time. Very difficult thing to, to manage, to not go too far with either of those things and find that balance. And it is a difficult thing, but he pulls it off, you know? Well, and, but in the writing too, you don't have that tendency, the thing I just love, you don't have that tendency to monologue. You know what I mean? Like what Mamet would call the, you know, I had a puppy kind of syndrome. Right. It's very sparse. And I think that that's so again, like there's these the spaces in between the lines are almost more important. Like seriously, my my favorite scene from season two, it for a lot of people would be considered a throwaway scene. But it's a scene with you and Britt at the bowling alley where y'all are having a game and kind of busting each other's chops and then cut to sitting at the counter, eating, not saying a word, cut to commercial. It's those little moments that that tell me everything I need to know about Ray, not just in that moment, but like globally in the series itself. I'm glad to hear that, that kind of marriage between the visual and the written word is so so dynamic. Yeah, well, I I, I think uh, I think writers have a tendency to sort of, I guess, override things and want to explain everything, and I don't do that. And I mean, you know, if I, I write an episode, I mean, we had I wrote seven episodes this season. We ended up with nine. So yeah. <laughs> It's uh, it's funny, and it generally works that way. I mean, last season was the same. I wrote 10, we did 11. I think we could have even had 12 possibly uh, last season. We cut a lot of stuff out. Like, we, we we shoot a lot of stuff. We cut a lot of good stuff out. I mean, yeah. that's something to see one day is, is a version of the show where it's, you know, <laughs> instead of 26 eps, you know, we do, we do 30 and we put back all this great stuff. Some of my favourite moments of this show – uh, never made it into the final. Ray, I just have to say at this point that we interviewed Nick Cassim uh, on Monday and he happened to mention that in his death scene, uh, he said just for reasons of time, he said he was just about weeping 
at the at some of the dialogue that you guys had to cut. He said Ray had the most beautiful dialogue in there, and he said just for reasons of time, he said it broke my heart. I understood why. It's still a good scene, but he said, "Gee, the stuff that hit the floor was good." Oh, mate, there's so much. There's so much great stuff. Like it's just great, and some of my favorite stuff. Some of my favorite scenes of all time. Uh, you know, just little dialogue moments and stuff are not in there, and that's difficult. You know, it's a really difficult thing. You know, to look at something and get excited about something and go, "Oh, this is such a great, this is such a great little little scene here," and people don't get to see it. So hopefully, one day people will. That takes a yeah. lot of discipline. That takes a lot of discipline. I don't envy you. I wanted to ask you really quickly, since I'm a casting director, about the casting process, because mm. I imagine in The Magician, you didn't really have to have the huge casting demands that you've had in the series. And I'm just mm. wondering what that must have been like for you. To Were you in casting sessions with Kirstie McGregor? Did you read opposite people? Did you watch people on tape? I mean, what was the process for you in general? Pretty much all of those things, you know, we'd get a, we'd get a, we'd get little sort of clips of people's auditions and I'd go in and read with some people. Uh, so it just, it just depended. And some people, we just, we didn't really have to get them to audition. We just said, Hey, look, you know, do you want to do it? You know? Because, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, kind of a mixture, I guess, you know. Is it something like Damon? I would imagine that Damon, you just knew you wanted or Matt Nabel, you just knew you wanted. Oh yeah. Totally, totally. People like that. Emily Barclay, who appears in season three, was the same. Uh, big fan of hers. You know, so people who've got, you know, they've done a bunch of work and you're a bit of a fan of, you don't really bother with, with getting them to audition because you know they're going to bring it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask you about the role of Jacinta. I, I so love the casting of Natalie Tran. And I love your writing of this role because so often the ex-wife, who, no matter who, she, you know, no matter what the show is just like such a sullen, resentful bitch. And the lead is sort of trying to drag down her character so his character can have more status. And I just love that you make her just, I don't know, she's warm, but she's not too warm. There's history between them. Can you just talk about that role a little bit and what was important to you in that role? Well, I think the thing is I kind of wanted to have have a show where the guy's personal life is as big an issue, as big as a bigger problem for him, or if not more so than his <laughs> professional life. So, okay, he kills people and, uh, you know, he gets beaten up and he gets shot at and all those sort of things. But And especially with season one, you see that, you know, he kind of deals with these. He's pretty bulletproof and he deals with them pretty easily, pretty calmly. But the situations he finds himself in that, that cause him kind of anxiety are uh, the situations with, you know, his ex-wife, for example, the first time you see her and she's like... Uh, what does she talk about? She questions him about, you know, you're telling your daughter that Jesus doesn't exist and all this kind of stuff and puts him on the back foot there. Um, so I wanted, I wanted, I didn't want her to be some pushover. I didn't want her to be just some, you know, horrible person. I wanted her to be real. I'm always constantly trying to stay away from stereotypes. Mm-hmm. I'm going to write a character. It's like, well, okay, this is how most other people do this character. Yep. I do it. What's the We've seen it already. So so why do that? So I've got to do something else. I've got to do something different. I've got to go the other way. And that's always with any character that I'm writing is I'm trying to do it in a way that that hasn't quite been done or, or hasn't been done that much. Settle a bet for us. Um, I think Jacinta knows that he was a hitman and knows about his life of crime and maybe that she just didn't want that anymore and that's why they broke up. Uh, my beasts here 
disagree with me? What's what's the story in your mind? I, I don't think that she knew that he was a hitman. I think that she knew he was into some pretty nefarious kind of stuff. But uh, she wasn't she wasn't a Christian when they got married. And I guess that was the thing, you know, she found Christ and then that they kind of went in different directions. And I think that's what kind of sort of tore them apart in the end. But isn't that interesting in season three now with the, the God conversation with Gaz? I think that's really, especially in light of Ray's kind of coming to meditation, you know, and, and having that kind of debate with Gaz. I have forgotten about the conversation with, with the ex and about Jesus. We've been seeing a lot of like mirror actions between like previous seasons and season three kind of like mirror image scenes. Dean <laughs> wanted to ask you about Chica. Go ahead, Dean. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to say just before that, Ray, that that Big Bang discussion, I laughed my ass off throughout that whole exchange with you and Gaz because I have, I'm a total atheist, but I have the same problem as you, as in you can rewind, you know, Stephen Hawking style, you know, as much as you can understand it and go, yeah, but but what did the Big Bang happen in? Like that just blows my mind. So I was laughing at, at, at your script there, but the on-screen ease between you know, Ray and Britt is extraordinary. I was wondering what your real life relationship was like with Chica. Uh, did you know? Did you grow up as a as a close presence in her life around Nash's house, courtesy of your relationship with Nash, which I think predated her birth? Or did she only know you fleetingly as some guy that came and went from the house? Uh, you know, worked with Dad. How did that roll? Well, yeah, I kind of. Chica and I, you know, over the years, you know, I'd kind of watched her grow up a little bit, but I wasn't that sort of heavily involved in her life at all. You know, I just sort of come and go. And, you know, I guess working on the show with her was where I got to spend the most time that I'd ever spent with her. But um, we get along really, really well. You know, we pretend we kind of don't like each other. Um, (laughs) It's that. We've both got that personality. If we we like somebody, we kind of, we kind of take the piss out of them all the time. And, you know, very much like that. And she's super intelligent, super perceptive, you know, wise beyond her years. I think she's most probably an old soul, I would mm. say. You know, we just get along and we work very much in the same kind of way. Um, we're not trained actors. We just kind of show up, learn our lines and, and do it. And we're kind of in the moment. Um, and if I go somewhere, she'll come with me. Or if she goes somewhere, I'll go with her. And it's just very organic. You know, and it just works so easily. It's so effortless. In our very first episode, Lisa, with her casting director hat on, commented about how difficult it often is to find the right kids to interact with adults and kids generally. And so with that in mind, considering that Chica, like you, had never really, I mean, you'd done The Magician, but you're not an actor, right? You weren't an actor. So she hadn't acted at all. What on earth made you and Nash decide... That, that she would work and was she written as an Asian Australian character originally or as a result of being cast you then had to cast Natalie Tran curious about that yeah we didn't uh she wasn't cast as any particular race I find that you know I have done that before and I find it very very difficult because you know it's all about finding the right person um and if you if you say oh this person is this race or you know, then it, then it kind of limits you in finding the best person. So she was just written as there was no description at all of mm. what the place was, anything like that. And generally I don't 
do that at all uh, and, unless it's absolutely necessary. But, uh, you know, we'd been, we'd been looking at auditions and we weren't digging anybody. These kids were all actory kids, you know, they wanted to be actors and all that kind of thing. And one of the great things about uh, Chica is she doesn't really want to be an actor. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not her thing. She's not like, oh, I really want this and da 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 da. So, you know, Nash was like, oh, we're not finding anybody. And I was like, yeah, we're looking at the auditions. And, you know, nobody was sort of standing out. And Nash said, oh, look, you know, I might get uh, Chica to, uh, to audition. I said, yeah, sure. You know, so he got her to audition. I saw the audition. I went, yeah. You know it when you that's, see it. That's, that's Brittany right there. Let's go. <laughs> so, right. And the great thing is, too, he had a wealth of sort of stuff that had happened with with he and her. I mean, the stuff, the whole conversation, you know, about, you know, is Santa Claus real in season one? That's a conversation that he had had with her. Mm-hmm. So and I basically she, took that uh, and it, just in, tweaked it, it a little bit in certain spots and that was it. You know, the, the conversation in season two was the same thing. He'd had a conversation with her about you know, where the babies come from and all that kind of stuff. So I just took that and tweaked that a little bit. That's what makes it kind of real, I guess. And, you know, is that he has all those experiences with her and then she gets to play them again. And Mm. as she is really as a real little girl, you know, growing into a woman and shooting up, you know, she's so much taller. She's so much more mature. I mean, I imagine that you have to write into that. I mean, is that, is, is that inspiring you to kind of write along those lines or did you already know that you were going to write something like that for Brittany? Yeah, I figured I figured that I would write something like that. Uh, and, you know, in an early, earlier drafts, I didn't quite sort of nail that. You know, I, I, I spoke to Nash at one point about that, and I'd just sort of be like, you know, what's going on with Chica? Because I hadn't seen her since the end of season two. So I was just trying to get, you know, and reaching out to Chica directly, you know, and, you know, asked her a question here or a question there about something and just to try to get her, try to sort of hone in on who she kind of was. And that kind of helped, you know, with further drafts, you know, with a bit of prodding, you know, I was able to uh, to kind of make her who she is now i guess you know was she at all embarrassed about i mean we have we we only have seen so many episodes but there's there's a scene where she's you know got a boyfriend he's putting his arm around her and sometimes for kids that can be very that's really tricky for them especially when you're doing it in front of your real dad i'm just curious as it just occurred to me how did you handle that or was that at all awkward I think it might have been a little awkward for both of them, uh, for both of the actors, for, for uh, both the characters there, but they seemed to get along quite well and were both, you know, sort of reasonably kind of sensitive kids, you know, and uh, so I, I don't think that was a big issue for them. Brian? This is not exactly on the topic of the seasons, but when we first, when Lisa first approached me about doing this, this is our the first show that we covered with the podcast was Mr. In Between with season one and two. And the thing that both of us responded to was the fact of, you know, so with Lisa and me both, like if we see somebody on screen, it's like we check IMDb Pro. Like what have they done before? And the thing that struck us was you had done very little. And at this stage of your life to like, you know, it's that whole fucking story of like, oh, it's the overnight success that took, you know, 20 fucking years. Right. Mm. And so my curious, here's my question. Nick kind of alluded to this when we talked to him that at some point, at one point, like 
you and Nash had a potential deal on the table that you walked away from because they weren't going to give you creative control. And his feeling was just knowing you the way he does on set and the couple seasons he worked on the show, that it would be very easy for you to kind of walk away, that you're not invested in the same way that he is as an actor in like getting a part or so many actors. And what was that process like of getting there? You went through some things to get to the place where you are now, and it's an enviable position, but I mean, it was hard fought. I'm sure it took a little bit of a toll. Whatever you can speak to on that, I'd just be curious. Mm. Yeah, well, look, it is it is very difficult. I mean, it's um, I personally don't see the point in making anything if you can't make it the way you want to make it. You might as well go do something else. That's tough. That's hard. You know, after you know the you know we had a we had a deal in the states with uh, somebody and uh, they wanted to do a pilot, and uh, I stuck to my guns, and you know that deal went went south and that's very difficult when you're uh you know then you're uh, delivering pizzas and you're driving taxis is and part of you goes maybe i should have could have should have could have should have and that's difficult to live with when you're sort of out in the wilderness doing that for 10 years and you're not making anything you know it is it is very difficult because uh you know you got to pay your rent and there's all those sort of things so you know i did have I guess regrets at the time, and but certainly I'm glad that if we hadn't made the show back then, it wouldn't be as good as it is now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've matured as a writer, as an actor, mm-hmm. and as a person, and um, was able to bring so much more to it. I mean, if you look at the Magician, for example, the the feature film that the show's based on, I've grown as a person, and that helps the show. So. Ultimately, the show got made, and it got made at exactly the right time. Yeah, exactly. I think one of the reasons that Brian is asking that, Scott, is because we're not, Brian and I are not Hollywood people whatsoever. I mean, we toiled as actors and writers and directors for a long time, and we know that they are out there, these people who championed and trying to make it with their scripts and stuff. And so to see you make it and break through, it's like you're a hero to us, you know, for sticking to your guns because we really fucking get it. Real quick, what is the relationship like with FX? Because for me, like FX is one of those networks that's really doing cutting edge material. To me, them and HBO are kind of the most consistent networks for like really good series, really good shows. So I was just curious, like um, obviously they've given you creative control, but what's that partnership like with you or for you with with them? Uh, The partnership is really good. I mean, the good thing about FX is that they trust the people that they work with. Well, they don't work with you. Don't micromanage. They don't sort of think that, uh, you know, because we had issues. I mean, I remember being in a, I remember being in a meeting uh, years ago in Australia with a, with a network and they wanted to do the show. They were very keen and they were telling me all their ideas about how they would, ha- what they would like to see happen with the show. And I remember in this meeting just, you know, my eyes rolled back into my head. You know, I couldn't believe the things that they were <laughs> do and stuff I was just like oh my god and that's the great thing about FX is that they will take chances they will take risks and they will trust in you to you're the you're the guys making it you go out you know and and they're supportive I mean there's notes there's support there's all that sort of stuff so it was it was a really good 
you know, on the whole, I'd say, I mean, of course, there's always issues, but on the whole, I think it was a positive experience. Yeah, just as a as, as a straight comeback, was that meeting there where you rolled your eyes? Was that the show which shall remain unnamed, but the one that then they did their own version of it and flopped? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Good to hear. Sorry, I just wanted to say that with the magician, you raised the magician, and uh, any any you know anyone that's half a fan of Mister In Between knows that that's where it all started for you back in two thousand and five. But uh, I wanted to ask, why did you call the film The Magician? Well, basically, I mean, it's, it all has to do with the tagline on the poster. I guess he makes people disappear. Yeah. That's, that's uh, you know, there was another one, the mathematician, he solves problems. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, there was something about, because it's a black comedy, giving it a title where people watching, they go, well, geez, this guy's not a magician at all. I feel duped. Where's Penn and Teller? Yeah. So was it literally based on John Reagan, the guy, the Sydney guy that was known as the magician who got killed? He was a hitman in the 70s in Sydney. I've never even heard of John Reagan. Oh. Yeah, he's oh, wow. he's known. There you go. Oh, you blown me. I, I thought, oh, yeah, you're a Sydney guy. He was this notorious hitman in the 70s. Yeah, I'm the- going to do some research now. Oh, I'll send you a link. Okay, so here's my question. In the final scenes of, of Episode 5, Before I Went to War, it's established that it's not about your war experience, as many suspected, but it's about your dad, Bill, played by Kenny Graham. And over the previous two seasons, you'd fleetingly yet categorically established that your relationship with him was full of hate and dismissal on your side and sort of a yearning for connection or reconnection on his. My question is, back in series one and two, had you already sketched in in your head in the storyline that he was a Vietnam vet suffering PTSD, undiagnosed, which drove his alcohol abuse and alcoholism and abuse of, of you and Bruce? Or was the detail of his confession to you about that in that nursing home scene was that something that you just came up with between series? No, he'd, I'd always planned it that way. It was actually based on Chopper Reed, his experience with his father, who was a veteran, and also oh. called uh, Graham Henry, who was, a, who was a Sydney criminal. His father, I'm not sure if he was a returned veteran, but he was. his father was quite violent towards him. That's Graham Abbo Henry, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yep, okay. And... Uh, He's actually the the character the character of Graham in episode one is named after Graham Henry. Ah, nice! What a great yeah, actor! I, I love that actor you got for that. His he, whoa, my gosh, we we call him a jabroni in uh, the states, but he was just wonderful. He's incredible. He's, he was he, he, he was amazing. He he was. I mean, the thing about him, what's amazing about him is he he looks the part. Like he's he's a, he's a big guy. He's scary looking and he, he's tough. He's incredibly tough. He was one of the toughest uh, rugby players to ever play the game, you know, like mm-hmm. super tough. But he also has a sensitivity about him as well. Yeah. And you feel what you feel in those final, in his final moments, you know, is an incredible achievement on his part. Because if, you know, if he doesn't bring it in that scene, I mean, it's the whole episode is not going to work. So he was a, he was a, he was a revelation. So I was blown away. Yeah. Did you, um, th- that opening scene, Scott, where they're in the backyard, I, it just so happens that I started to rewatch my father-in-law's visiting and we watched the first part of Blue Murder, which has just come to Netflix. And there's a scene in there where I think it's Nettie 
in the background playing with a gun, playing with his kids. Was that in your mind when you wrote that scene, the opening scene of Brahim and the kids in the backyard? Because there's a pool and everything. It's the same. It's, no? Shit. No, it actually, it actually comes from a movie called, one of my favourite films is, is a movie called Straight Time with Dustin Oh, yeah. yeah. Based on uh, a book by uh, Eddie Bunker. I think yep. Ed, Eddie Bunker? Yeah, Eddie. Eddie. Yeah. The actor. Yeah, so yeah. so it's it, it's got kind of a little bit of a, an homage to the scene where uh, Harry Dean Stanton and Dustin Hoffman are sitting in the backyard having a barbecue with Harry Dean Stanton's wife, and it's it's and interestingly, the little girl who plays Graham's daughter is Nash's other daughter. Oh, fine. oh, there we go! Such a great juxtaposition with this big guy putting on her little swimmy. I mean. Yeah, yeah, well, that's, yeah. that's the whole thing is that it works so great because you've got only a very limited time with Graham. You've only got a couple of minutes. What you've got to do is you've got to make the audience like this guy. You've got to make the audience go, oh, okay, I see he's criminal, he's tough, he's all that sort of stuff, but he's also a father and he's very caring and he's very, mm. and it's like it makes you kind of, it, it invests you in the character very quickly. Of course, you see the other, this is juxtaposition of, you know, then you see him beating the crap out of these guys, which is the complete opposite of what you've just seen with her. And also, it sort of ties in nicely with when he's dying, you know, hopefully the audience is thinking about her as well, thinking about how sad that is, you know, and it adds just an, an extra little note. Yeah, well, speaking of cameos like the Nash's other daughter, for those uh, listeners who missed it, in the scene where you visit um, Ali's house for Christmas and you throw the arsehole brother through the window, that, of course, was director Nash Edgerton. So there's that. But then also the fantastic, the uh, what's it, what, what do you call them, the counsellor uh, in season one, uh, your anger management counsellor with the shirt and the crew neck skivvy and everything is, uh, of course, director David Michaud of Animal Kingdom fame. Have you slipped any others in there that we've missed? Any Anybody well-known that I've got, got through the net? There's a bunch of people... Uh, in the show that Nash knows personally. Quite a long list, actually. Uh, as we sort of wrap up here, are you a bit sad to say goodbye to Ray? I mean, you've lived in his skin for so long. Is there any melancholy or is it like, mop, mop, done, let's move on? No regrets, no sad feelings at all. Uh, it was. It just felt like it was time for a bunch of different reasons. It was time just to say goodbye. I guess after season two, I was kind of, I was pretty worn out. And I guess the, the the thing, you know, the whole thing about season three was just to do it for the fans, the people who'd supported the show, was to give them something that sort of wraps it up, you know, where they could they get a chance to say goodbye. You know, it's mm-hmm. like it's like somebody dying, you know, in the middle of the night, and you don't get a chance to say goodbye to them, you know. Um, this way, you know, coming into season three, you know that this is it, you know what you're going to get. And you know that you're going to get that opportunity, you know, and that during that final frame, you know, you've, you've invested 26 episodes, you've, you know, and you've watched them once or twice or sometimes three or four times. You've lived with this person for so long and invested so much of your life, I guess, your time into this person that um, when that final frame comes, you know it's coming. Hopefully that's going to be a special experience for the audience and hopefully they're going to they're going to walk away and say, well, geez, that was really worth 50 or 100 or 150 hours that I spent with that character. Hey, 
you guys, if you're enjoying this podcast, please go over and give us a positive six-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Plus, if you know someone who would like the show, please send them a link. Sharing is caring. And now back to the show. Each of us have said, like, this show, it packs such a punch in such a short amount of time. The economy of storytelling is absolutely staggering. I just love it. I just yeah. love it. I think it's great. Um, but look, that, that comes that comes from the fact that I'm 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 actually a very I'm a lazy writer. Uh, <laughs> Aren't we all? Um, if there's a there's a scene and I'm like, yeah, you know, if it's if it's just try if it's a scene where it's just trying to move the story forward or it's just it if it doesn't excite me to write it, I just don't write it. Because I think to myself, well, if I can't be bothered writing this, or I'm not really excited about it. How the hell the audience to want to watch it or enjoy it? Kind of what mandates that is that I, I don't like boring filler scenes. I don't like to write them because I just I'm not interested. And that's why the show, I guess, is what it is in 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 that regard. One last thing, Dean. Uh, yeah, I just on it's it's funny you just spoke about the economy of of the writing and Ray's character is a man of few words. I mean, most of the cast, if not half of them or more, have way more dialogue than you. But to me, noticeably in season three, and I don't know if it's just because I've just started noticing it and you've done it the whole way through or not or not, but you seem to be, to be doing a lot more nonverbal stuff and particularly with your mouth and. For instance, the way that you pull your lips away, you spoke about that death scene with Graham and the look on your face and the faces that you pull as you look away with him, it was like regret, frustration, exasperation. It, it all was there in your face. And as Lisa stole my line, you know, it did. It, it almost in your head, you're like, shit, it didn't have to be this way, mate. Why, why did you do that? And the look in your face when you peer into the cubicle and see Adam on remand all fucked up. And particularly that end scene of uh, before I went to war, you don't make eye contact with your dad, Bill, at all during those series of reverses. Not once. I just watched it again. And but the emotions that ran over your face during that were just incredibly powerful. So was it a conscious decision that you've started to do more of this and be aware of that? Or is it just me? I've just started noticing it more lately than other. Yeah, look, I don't. When it comes to a scene, I generally... I don't write on the page, you know, Ray cries, Ray gets emotional or this character gets emotional or that character gets emotional. It's just all about in the moment how you feel, you know. As Graham was dying, you know, I'm just in the moment. I'm not like I'm going to pull this face or I'm going to pull that face or I'm going to feel this or I'm going to feel that. I just sort of try to stay in the moment and not, you know, because the problem is when, you, when, you know, when, it, when, there's, a, when there's a direction like that of like, you know, Ray is sad then you're kind of straining for something and you're trying mm -hmm. to force something, which is sort of counterproductive, I think. So it's good just to be able to be in a scene and just go, I'm just going to feel what I feel. So, you know, with Graham, Graham's dying and Graham dies. And that was just my natural reaction was just to make that face, was just to go, yeah. just to be in the moment, be that character watching this man die and then just reacting from, from that. So it's not, something that's planned it's just something that's happening based on what's in the script and yeah. i yeah. guess i mean the thing is you know learning you know like this is my first professional acting gig so season one i was like what you know what am i doing you know who what's this camera where is you know i didn't know 
Um, I guess that's probably feeling a bit more comfortable as an actor and probably maturing as an actor and growing and all of those things. You know, the performance, uh, I think, has probably improved somewhat and is probably a bit more nuanced um, than, than, than previous seasons. Well, of course, we don't know how the series finale is going to end. We don't know if we say goodbye to Ray going down in a fiery blaze of glory or a small, quiet death or if he's got a chance of another kind of life. But whatever happens, I am so glad that it's going to be on your terms and the story is going to be exactly how you want it to because it's just incredible what you've done. And if you're ever in the States, uh, Brian and I have to take you out for a pint or or five. And um Absolutely. Uh, any other anything before we say goodbye to this very generous man who's given up his time on the mountaintop in the rain? Uh, yeah, go ahead, Bron. No, I was just going to say thanks for, for coming on. I mean, we're all yeah. just so appreciative. And- thanks for having me on, guys. You know, I've, yeah. I've, you know, I've listened to you guys uh, over the past, I guess, you know, whatever period of time it is. And uh, you guys are... Uh, I appreciate you guys supporting the show. You know, I'm glad you're enthusiastic about it and you're, and you're loving it. And yeah, thanks. Thanks for your time. How, how could we not? Now we've saved the two biggest questions, Ray, for you until the very end. These are the most important questions for you. And here they are. Number one, in real life, not Ray Shoesmith, Scott Ryan. Are you a big fan of Dimmies? Uh Oh, I'm already disappointed. I wanted an emphatic yeah, yes. Look, I, look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a one-word answer. I'm not oh. a huge fan. I'm not a huge. Not fan. a huge fan. Oh, well, that kills my second question, which is steamed or fried. Oh, fried, mate. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> all right. Okay, you've redeemed yourself. You've redeemed yourself, son. It's all good. <laughs> all right, my dear. Thank you so much. Um, we just can't thank you enough, and I hope you uh, enjoyed the pod when you hear it. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, guys. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks, Scott. Good on you, mate. Cheers. Casting was created and produced by Lisa Zambetti. Sound editing by Dean Laffin from Real World Productions. Logo art by April Laffin. Theme music provided by Amphibious Zoo Music. And Big Fat Opinions provided by Brian Allen Hill.